I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with us uh, this morning to Acts chapter 18. And we'll be looking at verses 18 through 22 as we're following the final phase of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. So he's been in Corinth for at least a year and a half, possibly longer But uh, he was able to stay that long because he was dragged before Gallio, the Roman proconsul of the uh, district of Achaia, where Corinth is the capital. And he was, uh, Paul was brought up on charges of, by the Jews, of being disruptive and breaking their law. And they brought him before Gallio, again, the Roman proconsul, and he refused to hear the case, thinking that This was an internal religious controversy within Judaism. And in making that basic verdict, what he did was he placed Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the growth of the church as somewhat of a legalized form of Judaism. And that gave them special political and governmental protection. So they were able to Uh, thrive and flourish within the city of Corinth. So Paul stays there for a year and a half because he doesn't fear the the threat of that, uh, of the persecution from the Roman government. So anyway, we're in Acts chapter 18. I'd like to begin reading verse 18 and read down through verse 22. And in these few verses, we're going to finish up the second missionary journey. So I'll begin reading in verse 18. And as I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful and reverent attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts 18, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And Centria... He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. Then he landed at Caesarea and went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So again, basically in these final verses, what, um, and I'm not getting this, let's see on my screen, so I may have to have one of y'all run up and... So he's, uh, he's been in Corinth for a period of time and he's now ready to leave and he's going to make a go down to the port city uh, of Centria, and he's going to have his hair cut, and he's going to complete a vow that he had made previously. Then he's going to go over to Ephesus for a very short visit, and then he's going to sail down to Caesarea, make a trip to Jerusalem, I think, and then go up to Antioch. But what's interesting is in verse 18 where it mentions that he makes a vow. He gets his hair cut in verse 18 and for he was keeping a vow. So the reason why he got a haircut 
is probably not because Priscilla said to him, Paul, you're going to go back to your home church looking like that? So he decided he needed to spruce up. That's not the reason. It specifically tells us he was making a vow. And the vow was why he got his hair cut. Now we don't know for sure uh, the, the, why Paul made this vow. But it does raise a lot of interesting questions about oaths and vows for the church today. You know, we just had the emphasis in our worship time of singing and reading the Scriptures that God keeps His promises. And that character of God should be reflected in us. We should be people who love the truth and who speak the truth one to another. At work, at home, among our friends, we should have as a priority that we speak truth. We love truth. We do not tell lies. But the nature of this vow that Paul is making, we can only speculate. And my best guess for why he made a vow was remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said that when he first went to Corinth, he went there in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So he was fearful when he went to Corinth. Uh, obviously, he had already been uh, beaten with rods in Philippi. He had had other, no doubt, threats upon his life. And he was just, he was a man like we are, and he was worn down, and he was fearful of additional, more physical persecution. And he was in much trembling. And being fearful of more physical abuse, the Lord encouraged him with a night vision. You remember that? If you look back up in verse 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 18, the Lord came to Paul at Corinth in a vision by night saying, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. In response to this promise that Christ makes him in this vision, I think that it makes sense that Paul at that time may have made a vow of thanksgiving to God. He came into Corinth fearful with much trembling, Christ encourages him with this night vision saying, do not fear, no one will harm you. I have many people here. And, and out of a thankful heart for this incredible blessing, I think he makes a vow to the Lord and, and he keeps that vow all the time that he's in Corinth. Well, now he's leaving Corinth and he goes to the city of Centria and now he cuts his hair, he, he concludes the vow and he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem to consummate the vow. And it seemed like to me that would make sense. We don't know this for sure. It's somewhat of a guess. But we do know that he made a vow. And the vow would be a vow of dedication to the Lord in some way in light of this great blessing that he received. Now you can make vows for other reasons as well. But the cutting of the hair also suggests that this was some type of a Nazarite vow. And though Paul being a Christian is free from the ceremonial law, he was still free to participate in some aspects of the ceremonial law if he chose to do so. He didn't have to. 
But being a Jew, it was a way that he would reach out and minister to Jews. Remember he said uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. So Paul still kept some of the Jewish customs, although he didn't have to, but he still did. And this vow would be, would be uh, one of those that he would keep a Nazarite vow. So if this was a Nazarite vow, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. It would be very interesting. A Nazarite vow, the word Nazarite means one who is consecrated or devoted to God. A Nazarite vow. It could be lifelong. For example, Samson was dedicated as a child to be a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a lifelong Nazarite. But you could also take a Nazarite vow for a shorter period of time within your life. Last for so many days, so many months. Then you'd consummate the vow and then you'd be released from the terms. But in Numbers chapter 6, if you made a Nazarite vow, there are several things you would deny yourself. You would drink no wine or strong drink, or vinegar. You would not even drink any grape juice. You would not have any raisins, or dried grapes, or fresh grapes. You wouldn't even be able to eat the seeds, or the skin of grapes. So all grapes, which were a delight, and a joy, and a blessing, all of that you denied yourself, when you were taking a Nazarite vow. You would also... Uh, not cut your hair for the length of your vow. And the hair was allowed to grow long. And this was a, a vow, a sign that you were separated to God. So, and in effect, by, by not cutting your hair, letting your hair grow long, if you're keeping a Nazarite vow, you're basically saying to everyone around you, I belong to God. And I don't care if you like my long hair or not, I'm growing it in devotion to God. That would be the the attitude when you're taking a Nazarite vow. So if you ever saw a Jewish man walking around with long hair, then you knew that man was taking a vow. Now not so today. You see some man walking around with a long hair, it just means he's a hippie. So customs changed. But back then, they would grow their hair long for the length of the vow. And then when that term of your vow consummated, then you'd cut your hair and you would offer it on the fire with certain sacrifices that you would make in Jerusalem at the temple. Some of those uh, sacrifices that were required in Numbers chapter 6 would be a a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, as a burnt offering. A one-year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. One ram without defect for a peace offering. One basket of unleavened cakes mixed with fine flour, mixed with oil. And unleavened wafers spread with oil and grain and drink offering. So you would offer all that with your hair thrown on the fire as a way to consummate your vow, your Nazarite vow. So normally they would shave their dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the temple, and they would put that hair on the fire with the sacrifice. The priest would then uh, take part of the uh, 
would take part of uh, one of the uh, animal sacrifices and he would wave it before the Lord as a wave offering. And that again would uh, release the Nazarite from his other vows of grapes and wine and juice and all that kind of stuff. The main problem with this in verse 18 when it says that Paul had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow is that normally you think that the hair would be cut at the temple. Well, he's cutting it in Centria, which is right down here. This is the port city that uh, he went down to to uh, consummate the vow, cut his hair, and to sail towards Ephesus from Centria. So the issue was, okay, he's cutting his hair too quickly. But it may have been that uh, the Jews, and you can read the Mishnah on this, and you can read what what uh, other Jewish writers of the time, Josephus, wrote about this. It could be that you could cut your hair earlier if your vow came to an end. Now, his vow may have been, Lord, as long as I'm in Corinth, I'm, I'm going to not cut my hair and dedicate myself to you because of the promise of your protection. And whenever I leave Corinth, well then my vow will end. So he's ready to cut his hair now in Centria. So the Jews may have allowed for that. But if you did cut your hair early, you had 30 days to consummate your vows in Jerusalem. Now that's going to be significant as you look at where he goes from here. In verse 19, he's going to go to Ephesus. He's going to preach in the synagogue. In verse 20, they ask him to stay for a longer time, but he did not consent. Why didn't he stay? He's always wanted to go to Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia. Remember, the Spirit of God forbid him to go into Asia. So now he's there in Ephesus. It's a wonderful place for ministry, but he stays there a very short time. And then he leaves. And he says, I will come back to you again, verse 21, if the Lord wills. And he sets sail from Ephesus and he goes all the way down to Caesarea and then notice he went up and greeted the church. Now it doesn't say he went up to Jerusalem, but that is the typical language to describe anyone who goes to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem because it's up in the up in the mountains, up in the hills, and you always go up to Jerusalem. That wouldn't make sense if he's greeting the church at Caesarea. You wouldn't say he went up to greet the church if he's in the flatlands of Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then it says he went down to Antioch, which again fits with going from Jerusalem north to Antioch. So this would fit with him eventually going to Jerusalem to consummate the vow. Let me just give you a couple of pictures here of, of the, of the uh, port in Centria where Paul sailed out of. We had the privilege of being there. And this is some of the ruins that are still there that go back to this time period. You can kind of see some of the different structures that would have been there when Paul was there. He cut his hair here. He got on a ship and sailed to Ephesus from this location. And it's uh, just a beautiful port that uh, he went down to. Uh, from here, you can also... Uh, we get caught up on the pictures here. There we go. From Centria, he sails over to Ephesus. 
He goes there for a Sabbath. He preaches. They want him to stay. He says, I can't stay. Why? It makes sense. He's got to get to Jerusalem to consummate his vow. So then he sails all the way down to Caesarea. Then he goes up to Jerusalem, consummates his vow. Then he goes down to Antioch, his home church, where he consummates, finishes up the second missionary journey. Now, all of this kind of raises a lot of interesting questions to me. And uh, some of them just deal with the nature of vows and, and oaths in the Bible. And uh, these are things that you run across. They are biblical, but you have to be very careful with making an oath or making a vow. Uh, first off, what's the difference between an oath and a vow? An oath is when you make a promise to somebody else, but you call in God to witness that promise. That's an oath. So you're, you're giving your word to somebody else. You're saying you're going to do something. You make a promise to them. And then you call in the name of God as witness. And that's biblical to do. You just need to be careful again when you do it. But it's something that uh, is, is done. Even God Himself took an oath that we read in Hebrews 6. And the oath that He took was based on His own name because there's no one greater than God. So you can take an oath, like if you ever called in, called in for jury duty or whatever, or before a judge, and you have to take an oath, that's legitimate. You promise that you'll tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You're, you're calling in God to witness. That would be a biblical kind of an oath to take. A vow, on the other hand, is a promise that you make to God. Not to man, but to God. And you promise to God something that you intend to do uh, in response to a blessing that He has given to you or as a desire to receive a blessing in the future. Uh, this isn't any kind of a barter or a bribe. A vow isn't viewed like that at all. But it's uh, something where you make a promise to do something to God. That's a vow. And again, a vow could be for a blessing received or for a blessing desired. In this case, I think with Paul, it was for a blessing received that God did protect him in Corinth. Gallio did render a verdict in his favor. And he was not abused physically. He was not harmed in Corinth. So God had blessed him, and in response to that blessing, Paul made this vow that as long as he was there, under God's protection, he would keep this, this vow. And I think that would be more the nature of what Paul is, is doing here. Whether it was fully a Nazarite vow or not, it's kind of hard to be dogmatic about it, but there are certain similarities there. So again, an oath is a solemn promise made to men calling on God as witness. But a vow is a solemn promise made to the Lord. Now the purpose of an oath is confirmation. Confirmation of the truth. You say to someone, I'm going to do something to you or for you or whatever it might be. And just to confirm that I am dead serious and I will fulfill my promise to you, I call upon God as my witness. So that would be the example of an oath. It's to confirm the truth of your promise to a person. The purpose of a vow is different. It's a commitment to God. 
When you make a vow to God, you're committing yourself to Him on a higher level than you normally do. That would be a vow unto God. Now, a vow is always voluntary. The vow that Paul is uh, making here or consummating is voluntary. And for him, it would last for a determined amount of time. But oaths and vows were kind of, those two are kind of linked together because you're making a promise in both cases are very serious things. We should never take them lightly. In fact, when you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, this is what Moses wrote. He says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. In other words, it's voluntary. You don't have to. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So again, I mean, this is pretty serious. If you make a vow to God, you better keep it. If you don't keep it, then it's a sin. It's voluntary. And I must admit, I've always looked at vows as being something that is kind of scary because if you make a vow to God, it's something that you, you need to, you need to fulfill by God's grace. Ecclesiastes also emphasizes this in chapter five when it says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. So in other words, you could vow a greater monetary gift or you could vow something like that to the Lord or to missions or to the work of the Lord in one way or another. Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So these are aspects of oaths and vows that we do run across in the Bible from time to time. And it's something to certainly uh, keep in mind. But oaths and vows, oaths more particularly, were abused by the Jewish people. Uh, the Pharisees were experts in finding loopholes in their oaths that they would make promises they would make to other people, calling in God as witness. They, were, they had devious minds, these Pharisees, these scribes, and in order to accommodate their own self-righteousness, their own pride, their own religiosity, their own way to, to get around and circumvent the law of God, they would come up with all these other additional little requirements and, and, and additions to add to the law of God. They did that so they could again find a trail around the law of God and they could end up on the other side of it not by virtue of obedience, but by virtue of evasion so that they don't have to necessarily speak the truth all the time. In other words, they can make a, an oath to someone, but couch it in language that in a sense they didn't have to keep it if they really didn't want to. And this is why Christ, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, just rebukes them severely for their their wickedness and their tampering and lying ways. For example, look at uh, Matthew chapter 
5, I've got up on the screen, verse 33. Jesus is really rebuking them for the way, way they are trying to find a way to tell a lie, though they're promising something to somebody else, but they're, they don't have intentions on fulfilling it. So Jesus says again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond that is evil. Now, the Lord isn't saying that therefore you should never take an oath because He takes an oath before Caiaphas. When Caiaphas says, I adjure you, are you the Messiah? And the Lord answers. He responds and basically uh, takes that oath. And we can take oaths again in a court of law and other places like that. But what Christ is primarily getting at is that they were not telling the truth. And truth, like our God, is important. Our God is a promise-keeping, truth-telling God. He cannot lie. And He wants that reflected in us. And that was not the case with the Pharisees and the scribes. They would come up with all these systems, all these ways to get around it. And that's reflected here. Uh, they were making oaths by heaven, oaths by heaven, or by earth, or things like that. And, and, and they would couch it in such a way that they could violate their word if they so chose to do. So this enabled them to make an oath and break it without sin because they had actually legalized this in their mind. It was kind of like legalized lying. And Christ will just rebuke them severely for all of this. Look at what He says in Matthew 23. He's saying to these Pharisees and scribes, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple... That is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. So they had these little rules that if you, if you went up and promised to do something, and you say, I swear by the, by the temple, that was a loophole. You didn't really have to fulfill that. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, well then you're obligated to keep it. So they had all these little verbal games that they played. Verse 17, you fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. Same thing. I promise I'll do this by the, by the, uh, what does he say? By the altar. By the brazen altar. I promise I'll do this. Well, that was a loophole. You didn't have to keep that one if you didn't want to. But if you swore by the offering on the altar, well, then you're obligated. Again, a lot of these verbal games that the Pharisees came up with. Verse 19, you blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? In other words, he's just rebuking them for this whole system of not telling the truth. Of finding some way to tell a, a white lie or a half lie, which is, which is still a lie, but to be able to justify it in your mind. Well, it's okay. It wasn't that bad. 
And Christ just again rebukes them tremendously as they deserve it because they were playing around with this whole concept of truthfulness that when you make a promise, you keep that promise. So the main point that I think the Lord is making in Matthew 5 and Matthew 23 is whether you make a, uh, uh, whether you make a vow to God or an oath or a promise to somebody else, you need to keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We need to be men and women and young people who are distinguished by being truth tellers. That we tell the truth. We do not lie. And of course, even growing up, I remember all the little games that we used to play to try to be able to get out of a promise that you made to someone else. We would tell oaths to one another and try to convince others to believe us, which was sometimes a a challenging task. But you may have done this too or heard people say, you know, I swear by, by my mother's grave. Well, that's telling an oath. But when you're a child, you would say things, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Or something like that. Whatever we would say as a, as a child. But the group that I ran around with, you still wouldn't trust them. Because then what would you tell them to do? Show me your hands. Make sure they're not crossing their fingers. Because if you said, you know, I'm going to tell the truth, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, whatever. But if they had their fingers crossed, well then, that was their loophole. That was their out. They're just being like a Pharisee. And again, with the crowd that I ran around with, that wasn't good enough. It's okay, take off your shoes. Because they may have been crossing their toes and then that would nullify the promise. So we come up with all these games about making a promise and not keeping a promise. And what we see with the Apostle Paul is he made a promise to God and he kept it. And by cutting his hair in verse 18, he was consummating that vow. He had kept it. He had made a promise to God and he was absolutely uh, consummating it, bringing it to the conclusion. So it kind of raises the question, I think, are vows appropriate for us today? There are occasions when we can tell an oath, but it has to be a very serious thing. This is not something you just use on a daily basis. It's got to be a very, very serious uh, issue. If you're going to call God in to bear witness, if you're telling an oath, making a promise to someone, and you call God in as a witness, you don't want to just flippantly do that. It needs to be something of a serious nature. But the same thing with a vow. Have you ever made a vow to God? Paul's made a vow to God. And it raises the issue, are vows in our relationship with the Lord still appropriate today or not? There's a lot of people in the Bible that made vows to God. Remember Jacob on his way out to spend time with his his uncle made a vow to God and he said in Genesis 28, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my Father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. Now that was a vow of seeking a blessing. And Jacob wanted God's protection and blessing so that he'd be able to safely return back home. And he says, God, if you, if you bless me that way, 
then you will be my God and I'll give you a tenth of all that, that I have at that time. And he kept that vow. But that was a vow. And again, these kinds of vows are not trying to buy God's blessing. It's just mainly a, a, a vow of how you will give thanks to God for that blessing if God gives it to you. We're not bartering with God. We're not trying to bribe God or or pay Him off or anything like that. That would be the wrong attitude when it comes to these kinds of vows. But He made that kind of a vow. Uh, Jephthah made a very foolish vow and rendered his daughter as devoted to God so she had to live a celibate life for the rest of her life. Hannah made a vow that if God gave her a child, she would dedicate that child to the Lord. So a lot of people in the Bible make vows. And again, it raises the question of whether or not vows are appropriate for us today. I think in many ways we struggle with this. Again, I certainly do. I'll be being honest with you. Because a vow requires a higher level of consecration or sacrifice or devotion or service for a specific period of time than what we normally do. And I think in some ways, a vow is a challenging thing. It's totally voluntary. Certainly don't have to make a vow. But I think sometimes we get too content with just living the status quo level of our Christian life. Everything's just kind of easy. It's kind of on autopilot. And I think we just sometimes can drift spiritually. And we need something to challenge us to a deeper consecration to Almighty God. And I think with the Apostle Paul, when he received that night vision from God, and God promised him that he would receive no harm from anyone, no one would harm him in Corinth, that he would be able to continue to do his ministry, that God had many of his elect there that needed to hear the Gospel and be saved, that that was such an encouragement to Paul that in response to that blessing, he committed himself to even a deeper level of consecration to the Lord. Now, whether that was totally a Nazarite vow, again, you know, there, there are some uncertainties about that. But he obviously did not cut his hair. We don't know what all he might have uh, been willingly to deny himself for that period of time. Of course, a Nazarite vow we know in Numbers 6 you know, wine and juice and vinegar and grapes and raisins and all that. We don't know exactly the full nature of it, but he made some kind of a vow to God in appreciation for a tremendous blessing. The reason why I think this is appropriate for us at times is because sometimes the Lord will bring a a wonderful blessing to your life. And how do we respond to God? when we receive that blessing? Do we just say, well, thank You, Lord, and we move on? But some blessings are of such a magnitude and are so rich and so good to us that it would be appropriate in making a vow of some kind to the Lord. Again, it's all voluntary. I'm not trying to put anyone under pressure. Or maybe there's something that you long for, a blessing that you desire. And you might make a vow to God in light of that seeking that desired blessing of some kind. Uh, these are things I think for us to think about. 
Because what they do is they challenge us that look, go deeper. It's just like when Paul wrote that letter to the Thessalonians that we saw a week ago or so. He says, you know what? You love everybody. No one needs to tell you to love one another, but you know what? Excel still more. And I think there are times in our Christian life that we just again again get on autopilot and I think we just kind of drift along. And I think God blesses us because He wants to draw us closer to Him with greater consecration and devotion. And it may be appropriate to set apart a period of time, a day, a week, a month, longer than that, where you willingly deny yourself or whatever it might be, commit yourself to some other act of service as a a way to show your thanksgiving to God for the blessing. In other words, I think we receive some tremendous blessings from God and we make no return to the Lord for it. We just take the blessing and we just move on down the road. And it's almost like we trivialize this incredible blessing. There's a verse in Second Chronicles that every time I read through the Bible, I read through this passage, and it has every time I get to this passage, it always kind of made my ears stand up and, and listen real carefully. But it's in Second Chronicles chapter 32, and this is Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 24, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. Remember, he became very, very sick. And he was going to die. And so he brings in the prophet Isaiah and, and he's crying out to Isaiah and, uh, and Isaiah brings back word to him that, that the Lord's going to heal him and give him 15 more years of life. And Hezekiah is still questioning, kind of like Gideon. And he says, well, I, I need a sign. And so God gives him the sign of, of the shadow on the staircase going backwards ten steps. So God promises this incredible blessing, shows him a miraculous sign to confirm it. And then he receives his healing. But notice what it goes on to say. Let me start in verse 24 again. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Now, every time I read that, I suddenly start thinking about myself. You know, because when I, and I must admit that uh, when I first received news of my own health challenges uh, being in remission, my cancer, that this, this passage popped in my mind. But I think on, on a level, we, we, we receive blessings from God. And what is the, the purpose of those blessings? It's to draw us closer to God. To thank God, to rejoice in God, to, to give our life more to Him. And yet oftentimes we don't do it. We just fill our pockets with the blessings of God and we just enjoy the blessings 
without truly worshiping and thanking the one who gave us those blessings. And in all of this, I think we, we find that there are appropriate times for us to consider a vow to the Lord, either in seeking a blessing or in response to a blessing that we have already received from the Lord. I've lost my next slide. But Matthew Henry said this. Let me read it for you. He said, It is justly expected that those who have received mercy from God should study to make some suitable returns for the mercies they have received. And if they do not, their ingratitude will certainly be charged upon them. Though we cannot render an equivalent or the payment of a debt, we must render the acknowledgement of a favor. And then he quotes Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I think that's a good question for us to ask. What shall I render unto the Lord for all of His benefits toward me? See, Hezekiah was really guilty of a sin of omission. He gave no return for the benefit that he received. Now, it doesn't specify what the nature of that benefit or return should be. The benefit was the healing. Whether it's just a prolonged time of thanking God or whether it was dedicating himself to some service or, or offering up a hundred animal sacrifices. And it doesn't say the nature of what he did not give in return, but he did not give in return for the benefit that he received. Again, not that he was was obligated to try to pay God back for the blessing or buy the blessing, but his pride prevented him from expressing the appropriate thanksgiving that God deserved. And how often are we guilty of giving no return for the benefits we have received from the Lord. There it is. God's blessings are designed to draw us in a deeper walk with the Lord. Not to become more self-independent. Not to become more just fixated with the temporal blessings. But to enjoy the blessings. But to respond to the Lord in greater love, devotion, service, sacrifice, giving, whatever would be appropriate, whatever the Lord might lay upon our hearts. See, when God has shown extraordinary deliverances or blessings, we ought to consider carefully how we should respond, lest we spurn His goodness or take His blessings lightly. And I really think that's the nature of the vow that Paul was keeping. In response to the night vision, the promise that he wasn't going to be beat up or persecuted or stoned, or, or flogged, or whatever it was, that he was going to be in Corinth for as long as he was there under the protecting hand of God, that he made a vow of thanksgiving to the Lord. We don't know exactly what he vowed. That's voluntarily determined. If you want to make a vow at all, and if you do, what's the nature of the vow? But his thankfulness prompted him to do that to the Lord. I think that's the challenge for us. Is to not take our blessings lightly. 
but in some way to give ourselves, to separate ourselves, to consecrate ourselves more to the Lord for some period of time out of a thankfulness to God. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good thing given, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So in kind of wrapping this up, I think there maybe there are times when it is appropriate for us to excel in giving ourselves to the Lord in some special act of devotion, sacrifice, self-denial, or service. Again, not to earn or to merit those blessings, but merely to put, to put in bold print and neon lights the attitude of our heart of thank You, Lord, for this blessing. Thank You. And that praise with our lips is embellished by this consecration, this gift, this service, this devotion to God in one way or another. Paul took a vow which suggests that there are times that it's still appropriate for believers to do that. He took that vow, I think, because he was sensitive to wanting to give thanks to God for a blessing received. And I think in that sense, he may challenge us to go and do likewise. The attitude of the Christian life should be one of a perpetual sacrifice, shouldn't it? I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Exercise self-denial. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So that the, the day in and day out life of the believers should be one of a living and a holy sacrifice presenting our bodies to God. Because why? Because every day, day in and day out, we live in the joy of the forgiveness of our sins. Even setting aside extraordinary blessings in addition to that. But every day we walk in the light of the greatest blessing of all. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and He suffered in our place as our substitute. And He endured the pain and the wrath and the anger and the judgment and the curse of God for our sins. That we should suffer in hell forever. He bore that for us. And out of a thankfulness for our salvation, then we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God all the time. And then there are, in addition to that, there are occasions when special extraordinary deliverances or blessings come our way that are appropriate for maybe even excelling more in our life in that area. So I think this is uh, certainly challenging for us. And uh, I think it's something that Paul gives us a godly example to consider. Uh, oaths, again, Appropriate in their limited context. Vows as well. But uh, what Paul tells us is that there are times when it is appropriate to give thanks to God by a special commitment and consecration to the Lord.
And He was willing to do that. And maybe there are times in our life and we should do the same as well. Something to consider. It's voluntary, but it's a way to draw near to God and show Him our thanks and our gratitude for all that He's given to us. Well, may the Lord lead us and guide us in these matters. So with that in mind, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that we have the opportunity to look upon the life of a man who is very committed, very dedicated to the service of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just uh, would pray this morning that if there's anyone here that has never truly faced the reality of their sin, that they have never really given thought to the eternal destiny of their soul, that there is a heaven and there is a hell, And they have never truly acknowledged the depth of their sin before a holy God that God would be absolutely just to condemn them and have never yet turned to Christ who alone can forgive them and save them. Oh God, would You help them? Lord, would You give them that grace? Would You open their heart and give them true repentance and faith that they might come to know the joy of their salvation. That we might learn to walk with You and love You and serve You knowing that one day we will be in Your presence forever and ever. So Lord, we thank You for the Apostle Paul, his life of dedication. And even for the special times in his life when he wanted to to raise the bar even higher in his own consecration to the Lord and taking a vow. And those these are voluntary things, Lord. He does challenge us because we oftentimes become so flippant with the many blessings that we received. And You are worthy of all of our praise and all of our devotion. We, we should consecrate ourselves to You. So Lord, may Your Spirit guide us and deepen us in our desire to live our life more and more for Jesus Christ. And however that plays out in our life, Lord, help us to walk more closely with You in an attitude of thanksgiving for the blessings that You continually shower down upon us. Help us to do that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.